bunch of questions. <laughs> what are your thoughts on using earplugs during during sits? Yeah, if that works for you. Fine, no problem. So who's propelling the boat and who's lying down? <laughs> the person put their answer and they got it correct. <laughs> Here's someone saying they have sort of a background grade, low grade PT, even in three and four. Yeah, it's better if you don't. Uh, leave it as far in the background as possible. I think that's probably the best thing to say. Uh, you'll get a deeper stage if you get the PT turned off. But people do have problems at times getting the PT stuck on. Yeah, and so. If it's low enough grade in the background, it's probably not really going to bother you. Uh, but it, you would get a deeper jhana if it goes away. And this may clear up with continued practice. Or not. Let <laughs> <laughs> me say a bit more about neg entropy. I think I understand order chaos, which is entropy. I'm confused about the reverse. So. There are times when chaos gets converted into order. Uh, the trees grow up, right? They take the chaos of the sunshine and the rain and the minerals of the earth and they order it into a tree. You do the same thing. Corn does the same thing. Uh, this building probably used to be a bunch of wood and glass and metal out there in the parking lot. And then they took it all together out of that chaotic stuff, this orderly building arose. So there are lots of examples of neg entropy where something is put together and made into something. But all of those things are temporary. Uh, the building building's going to disappear someday, the tree's going to disappear someday, and we're all going to disappear someday. So the neg entropy, the order coming out of chaos, is a temporary thing. And in order to do it, it has to take something that still has some order and extract the energy out of it to assemble the order. But it's only a temporary thing, and eventually it goes away. That's helpful. Anything more? After hanging out at four for a while, I have disembodied experience. Specifically, my arms are in a different place. What does this indicate? <laughs> it indicates good concentration. So one of the things that happens is that as you get concentrated, you're no longer picking up the signals from your extremities like you do usually. When people complain about their hands turning into baseball mitts, or it feels like they're leaning really badly but they're sitting up straight, or it feels like they're sitting up straight but they're leaning really badly, um, or your arms are so heavy you can't lift them, or you don't know where your feet are. So the signals are coming in, but you're so concentrated on the object of the jhana 
that you're just not processing them in the near in the same way, and so things seem out of place, distorted in size, etc. And it's just a sign of good concentration. So what I want to do tonight is share with you a Jataka tale. The Jatakas are you know, supposedly stories of the Buddha's previous births. It says that in order to become a Buddha, you have to spend many lifetimes perfecting your ethics, your sila. And when you get it good enough, then you get born as a human and you become a Buddha. And so the Jataka tales are actually a part of the canon, at least in some of the collections. But they appear to be uh, Indian folk tales, which were co-opted and turned into the stories of the Buddha's previous birth. <coughs> some of them are pretty much Buddhist, and some of them are, well, they could be anything. Uh, and interestingly enough, some of Aesop's fables are Jataka tales. There was trade, particularly after Alexander the Great came to Afghanistan, so there was trade between India and Greece. And if you're on a caravan going that way, you stop for the night, you can't watch TV, <laughs> or you tell stories. <coughs> and the Jataka tales were some of the stories that were told, and they made their way to Greece, and Aesop collected them. Once the Buddha-to-be was born as a banyan deer. A banyan deer is a deer that has so many antlers that it looks like a banyan tree turned upside down. <coughs> When the abandoned deer grew to adulthood, he became the leader of the herd. And for many years, he led the herd in safety in the great forest. But in the human realm, a new king came to power. And that king felt that the best thing possible was going hunting. <coughs> Sorry. He liked nothing better than getting up at the crack of dawn, mounting up on his horse, and chasing through fields and forests, killing wild animals. He felt it kept him fit for war. Uh, it uh, was the king's favorite thing, but the members of the court were not particularly pleased. Because, of course, the king didn't go by himself. He needed his ministers and his bodyguards to come with him. And uh, the members of the court were used to a more genteel life. But he was the king, and they couldn't exactly complain. The townspeople didn't like it either. You see, somebody had to go out and beat the bushes 
to scare up the game. And nothing was worse for your business than one morning seeing soldiers showing up at your shop and saying, don't open your shop today, you're going to be a bush beater. But the people who really hated it were the farmers. Really messed up your crop, and the king and the members of the court and the bush beaters all come trampling across your field and destroy your crop. There was a lot of grumbling. Uh, but what to do? And the king felt it kept him fit for war, and he thought it was a really important part of being king. It was the farmers that came up with the idea, and they told the townspeople, and the townspeople told one of the ministers that they thought might be sympathetic. And that minister went to the king and said, Your Majesty, this hunting does indeed keep us all fit for war. But there's a problem. You see, quite often we go charging across some farmer's field and destroy his crops. This could lead to a famine. And if we have a famine, we will be very weak. And if there's a war, there won't be enough people fit to fight war and we could lose. Well, the king uh, didn't want to give up its hunting. He really liked it. But causing a famine, yeah, that really wasn't going to be such a good thing. Then the minister said, but we have a plan. The plan will enable you to still continue to be fit for war without trampling any of the farmer's fields. What we'll do is near the great woods, we'll clear some land that's not very suitable for agriculture, and we'll build a giant stockade. And then we'll go into the woods, and we'll get some wild animals, and we'll put them in the stockade. We'll put a viewing platform there so that you can come to the viewing platform and then hunt from there without having to ride through the fields and so forth. And we'll make the stockade big enough so it will be a challenge to shoot any animals at the far end. And this will keep you fit for war. Uh, he reluctantly agreed. He didn't really like it, but he really didn't want to cause a famine. And so, the farmers and the townspeople cleared this land, built a giant stockade. And then they went deep into the woods and they found two herd of deer and herded them into the stockade. One of the herd was the herd led by the banyan deer. When they had the deer in, they sent for the king. The king mounts up and rides out from the stockade lions up to the viewing platform, and he's quite impressed. His people have done a very nice job. And he's impressed with the herds of deer. Being the king, of course, he immediately spots the leaders of the herds. And he said, oh, these are magnificent beasts indeed. They are under my protection. No one is to harm the leaders of the herds. 
And then he got his bow, fitted an arrow, and then there were five minutes of terror. Some of the deer were killed outright by the arrow. Some were injured. Many deer were killed by their fellows' hooves as they tried to dodge the arrow. After the five minutes of terror, the king said, there, that'll do for supper. And he sent his men in to collect the dead deer to bring back for a venison feast. The next day, the five minutes of terror began. This went on for about a week. Then the banyan deer went to the leader of the other herd, said, brother, Try to find a way out of here. For the humans have built the walls too tall and too strong. I don't know how to get us out of here, but I do have an idea that may lessen some of the injuries. What we'll do is we'll draw lots. One day from my herd, one day from your herd. And whichever deer draws the short straw, must go and present themselves to the king. Hopefully, he will just kill the deer that waits below, and we won't have all of these injuries. The leader of the other herd agreed this was better than what they had now, even if it didn't solve all the problems. And he agreed. The next day, when the king arrived, he mounted up to the viewing platform, and there is one deer standing, trembling before him. All the other deer gathered in the distance, watching intently. And he shook his head. These are noble beasts indeed. They apparently have chosen one to come by lot. Shoot the deer that waits below, leave the others alone. And he walked off without shooting the deer. One of his men dispatched. This went on for about a week. And then the lot was drawn by a pregnant doe in the other herd. She went running to the leader of the herd and said, Please, it's not fair that two should die. Let me wait until my fawn is born and weaned, and then I will take my place. The leader of her herd said, you know the rules. Nothing I can do. In desperation, she ran to the banyan deer. Banyan deer, please. It's not fair that two should die. Please, let me wait until I've given birth to my fall and weaned it. And then I will take my place on the king. Banyan deer thought about it, and he had to agree it was not fair that two should die. He said, you're right. It's not fair that two should die. He agreed again. Overjoyed, she ran back to her herd. But now, Banyan deer had a problem. You see, it wasn't even his herd's turn. He couldn't ask anybody else to take over. When the king's men arrived, the king had stopped coming. When the king's men arrived, they were startled to see the banyan deer down there. And they had a problem. 
The king had said, the leaders of the herd were under his protection. They were not to be harmed. And the king had also said, shoot the deer that waits below, leave the others alone. Only one thing to do, send for the king. The message arrived at the palace. Your majesty, come to the stockade for an astonishing sight. The king, who had been having deer pranced through his dreams for a number of nights now, mounted up and rode like the wind. He bounded up the steps two at a time and was astonished to see the banyan deer there. He said, banyan deer, what are you doing here? You're under my protection. No one is to harm you. The banyan deer looked up and said, the lot today fell to a pregnant doe. It's not fair that two should die. So, as leader, I've taken her place. I have my duty, you have yours. Shoot. The king was completely startled. He'd never considered that he might have to sacrifice himself for any of his subjects. And yet, he had to agree, it was not fair that two should die. Banyan deer, you have taught me a very valuable lesson today. In appreciation of this valuable lesson you have taught me, you are free to go. The banyan deer looked up and said, it won't do any good. We'll just shoot another deer. No, I have my duty, you have yours. Well, now the king was completely flabbergasted. Being king, sometimes he sentenced somebody to death. And occasionally he would sentence someone to death and say, but you're out of the kingdom by sunset. You can live. And he never had anybody go, no, just kill me. But here was the banyan deer basically saying that. But the banyan deer was also right because the king was thinking, this one go, Let's shoot another deer. Oh, Banyan deer, you are a noble beast indeed. Not only are you free to go, your entire herd is free to go. Now are you happy? The Banyan deer looked up and said, won't do any good. The burden will just fall twice as hard on the other herd. No, I have my duty, you have yours. Shoot. It was true what the banyan deer said. Yeah, they were going to shoot one from that herd every day. Banyan deer, you're an amazing creature. You and your herd and the other herd are now free to go. Now are you happy? The banyan deer looked up and said, now, you'll just go back to hunting like you did before. You'll still be killing wild animals. I have my duty, you have yours. Shoot. Then, dear, you're a mind reader. Exactly what I was thinking. Okay, you can all go, and we won't kill any more animals. How, how about that? Are you now happy? Banyan deer looked up and said, even as we speak, your men are out with their nets, their spears, their arrows, killing the birds. 
You'll just kill more birds, won't you? No, I have my duty, you have yours. You can. Canyon deer, you drive a very hard bargain, but you are perfect. You're all free to go. We won't kill any animals. We won't kill any birds. Now are you happy? The Canyon deer looked up and said, Who will speak for the silent one? Even now your men are out with their nets and their spears, catching the fish in the rivers and the lakes. So, I have my duty, you have yours. King turned to his men. He said, This is my royal proclamation. From this day forth, no wild creature of any sort is to be harmed in my kingdom. He turned back to the banyan deer and said, Now are you happy? The banyan deer looked up and said, Yes! <laughs> and he leaped high into the air. The gates of the stockade were thrown open. The deer all went back deep, deep, deep into the forest. And indeed, the king and his men stopped hunting wild creatures. The king ordered the stockade torn down. And on the spot where the banyan deer had leaped high into the air, he erected a stone cairn. And on that, he put a circular plaque. In the center of that plaque was a picture of a deer with many antlers leaping high into the air. And written around it was the words, Never cease to care. I like this story because it illustrates the four Brahma-viharas. Brahma-vihara literally means God's abode, so the abode of the gods. These are the four states that the Buddha recommends. Ayakima referred to them as the only four emotions worth having. These are Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Upeka. Metta is usually translated as loving kindness. Sometimes you see loving friendliness. Uh, it really should be translated as unconditional love. In Greek, they have multiple words for love. They have eros, erotic love, philos, brotherly love. They also have agape, unconditional love. Loving someone just because they're a someone, not for any particular reason. And this is what is meant by mudita. When you're doing your mudita practice, it's probably good to start with the people that you can easily generate a feeling of love for. But the idea is to move out and send this love without conditions to everyone. Whether that love actually reaches the person you're sending it to, who knows? But it does change you. The next time you encounter that person, you'll behave differently. Each of these Brahma-viharas has what's called a near enemy and a far enemy. The far enemy of love is hate. This is pretty easy to see. 
The near enemy of love is attachment. You love someone because of the good things they do for you. You become attached to them. This is the hard one. The people we're really close to, we do indeed get attached to. But if you're close to someone and you want to do A and they want to do B, can you help make the decision by looking to see which of these is going to be the most beneficial for the two of you, not just for yourself? This doesn't mean that you always go, okay, you can do, we'll do B. You don't become a doormat, but you step back from your own self-interest and try and get a bigger picture to see, all right, what is best for both of us? And then sometimes that might be to stick to your wanting to do A, and sometimes it might be going, okay, we'll do B. But it sh the decision should be made not based on your desire, but based on your examining the situation and seeing, okay, what's, what's the best thing to do at this point? When metta goes out into the world, it might encounter dukkha. And metta turns into karuna, compassion. Compassion is doing the best you can to alleviate any dukkha that you've encountered. But it's not only doing the best you can, it's also about not being attached to the results. Remember the movie that Spike Lee had called Do the Right Thing? About the same time, I read an article by Joanna Macy in The Inquiring Mind that said, don't be attached to the results. So, you go out into the world with a heart full of metta, you meet dukkha, suffering, unpleasantness, however it manifests, and you do the right thing, but don't be attached to the results. People in the helping professions often experience burnout. I certainly have seen that amongst many of my friends that were therapists and so forth. Uh, and a lot of that is being attached to the results. It's really hard to work that hard on a project. And if it doesn't work, go, well, I worked really hard. And let it go. But that's what compassion is all about. Sometimes the best you can do is just wish the person well. May you be free from dukkha. Because you don't have any skill to do anything to alleviate that. And sometimes, yeah, maybe you can actually solve the problem. And sometimes you think you might can solve the problem, and you can't. But you did the best you could. All right. Let it go. The far enemy of compassion is cruelty. The near enemy is pity. That can take several forms, such as being attached to the results. It can also be, oh, let me help you out so there won't be this suffering in my environment, even though I'm not suffering, you're suffering, and I don't want suffering in my environment. So it's more about me. Or uh, let me help you out because if I succeed, it will make me feel good. 
And again, it's more about me. Often the near enemy has a lot of ego investment in it. Right? Now, sometimes when Metta goes out into the world, what it encounters is rejoicing. There's a lot of joy out there in the world. Metta rejoices right along with it. This is a hard one. This is mudita. And we don't have an English word that corresponds. It's such a foreign concept. We don't have the word in English. We have the opposite, indi, right? That's that's the far enemy. The near enemy. Uh I came called it hypocrisy. I think really the near enemy is rejoicing in someone else's good fortune, but there's some uh, identification or attachment there. Let's say your child comes home from school and has very good grades, and you're really happy. If the neighbor's child comes home from school and has even better grades, are you even happier? <laughs> right. What's your reaction there? Uh, so, uh, the Indianapolis Colts win the Super Bowl. And because you live in Indiana and you're a Colts fan, you are so happy, right? Because these grown men playing a child's game won the last game of the season. <laughs> It's because you've identified with the team, right? So all, watch all of this that goes on with the happiness around sports. People are identifying with the team or the player or whatever. And when they've made the identification correctly, meaning they identify with the person that won, they get all happy about it. And if they identified wrong, they get all upset. Uh, I had a friend, he was a football fan. He was in San Francisco and he was a 49er fan. But he said, you know, watching them lose just brings me more of a downer than watching them win. He didn't want to watch the games anymore. And he'd gotten so identified, so in there. Uh, remember when the uh, Winter Olympics were held in Vancouver, right? And, and the big deal was, of course, hockey, because that's the Canadian sport, right? And the finals were the Americans versus the Canadians, right? And the Americans had beaten the Canadians earlier. And when the game happened, I could see that there was going to be far more rejoicing in this world if the Canadians won, because they were completely invested. Everybody in the country was going to be rejoicing. The Americans, hockey? That. Oh, yeah, right. You know, if the Americans won, it was just going to be some short-lived USA, USA. And so I actually could appreciate the fact that the Canadians did win in a very dramatic way, simply because I was able to pick up the Medita and pick up all the joy in Canada and take it into myself. 
this is a really hard practice, people say. It's, they say it's the most difficult of the four Brahma-viharas. We never got trained, we never even heard of it until you come to Buddhism. And you hear it translated as sympathetic joy. Sympathetic joy meant just exactly as much to me as Mudita. <laughs> a better translation would be empathetic joy, but I prefer appreciative joy, appreciating good fortune, appreciating others' good fortune, but also appreciate your own good fortune. You might have heard that you don't do Mudita for yourself. That's a later misunderstanding from one of the later commentaries. One of the sub-commentaries, most sub-commentaries. The Vasudhimaga says you do mudita for yourself, and the Buddha certainly says that you do mudita to all as to oneself. So anytime you have good fortune, yeah, you want to rejoice. You want to appreciate your good fortune. And you don't want to appreciate it with, oh, look how wonderful I am. <laughs> right? So don't get your ego involved or you've fallen into the near enemy. Right? It's just good fortune. Appreciate your good fortune. Now, all of this needs to rest on a foundation of upekka, equanimity. Upekka literally means standing near. So you can think of it as taking a close look at what's going on and not getting pushed away, not getting caught up in exuberance, not getting caught up in panic. When there's compassion, equanimity sees very clearly what's there. It doesn't look away. And yet it's got the steadiness to allow you to do the best you can to alleviate that suffering. And when there's rejoicing, equanimity allows you to rejoice right along with it, but not get totally carried away. Your team wins the Super Bowl. You don't go downtown and turn over cars and break shop. That's not equanimity. So. The far enemy of equanimity is getting upset, right? Freaked out, panicked, over-exuberant. The near enemy is apathy. It looks like equanimity in that you're not moved by what's happening, but it doesn't care. Equanimity is being fully present and still not being upset or overly super or anything. As an aside, where I went to college, they eventually called a meeting about the apathy on campus. But no, nobody came. <laughs> <laughs> so I like the story of the banyan deer because it illustrates all of these. Right? Metta, unconditional love, pregnant doe comes to the banyan deer, and the banyan deer is willing to lay down his life to preserve hers. 
There's another spiritual teacher who said something about greater love has no one other than one who would lay down his life for another. Right? Yeah, that's unconditional love. The Banyan deer had compassion. Compassion drove him to try and figure out a way out of the problem, even though the king had said he wasn't to be harmed. Right? And to come up with the idea of drawing lots, and then really exhibiting compassion by standing there and continuing to say, I have my duty, you have yours, shoot. When the king finally gave up all of the killing, the banyan deer leaped high into the air. He had saved them all. That's Medita, right? There's ultimate rejoicing. And to stand there and say, I have my duty, you have yours, shoot, and pull it off required ultimate equanimity. So this is a really brilliant illustration of the four Brahma Viharas. These are the mental states we want to cultivate. They show up in the suttas. They're usually done in the suttas to the directions. So one sends the metta to the east, the west, the north, the south, above, below, and all around, to all as to oneself. And then the same for each of the other probably harms. The idea of the categories shows up in the Vasudhimaga. I do not know if it shows up earlier than that in the Abhidhamma or anything. But the categories are perhaps a little more personalized way to work with it. Uh, in the Visuddhimagga and the way that it's sometimes taught, you pick one person from each category to send to, and then you begin sending to groups. Uh, all women, all men, all happy people, all sad people, uh, all humans, all animals, you know, in, in the various groups. And that's a good way to do it. The way that Ayakima did it, she started very personal with yourself and then begin spreading it out to the people you were close to and further and further. Uh, so you had real, actual people that you were sending it to until it began to become general with the whole group that you were part of and the people supporting your retreat and then the neighbors and the area until it goes out to the whole world. I think her idea of working with the people that you actually know and getting that going well and then spreading it out is a very good way to practice metta. You can do the same for the other Brahmaviharas. The general suggestion is for compassion. There's, if you're doing phrases, generally only one phrase, which is, may you be free from, and you can say, your dukkha, your suffering, your unsatisfactoriness. And it suggests that you start with someone you know that actually is suffering. Uh, someone in the hospital, someone who had a loss, something like that. And just, you know, the phrase, may you be free from your suffering. May you be free from your suffering. You really feel it, think about it, try and feel it. 
another way to do compassion practice is the Tibetan Tong Lin practice. If you ever have a chance to have a teacher explain that to you, to practice it, it's a very powerful compassion practice. And basically, you're breathing in the ills of the world, and transmuting them in your heart, and then breathing out healing energy of some sort, love, flowers, whatever. Uh, and again, you can start with people you know that they are suffering and work out the general. If you're just doing the phrase, start with someone you know who's suffering and then start spreading out to the people you love, the people you're close to, uh, your acquaintances, just like you do with the method. For mudita practice, the phrase usually is something like, may you not be parted from your good fortune, may it increase, something like that. And it's suggested you think of someone who's having a very good fortunate time now. May you not be parted from your good fortune, may your good <coughs> fortune increase. And just use that phrase for that person and then spreading it out to all the other categories. For equanimity, this one's tricky. It's not that you're sending equanimity out. Uh, it's not so much as sending out, although you could send equanimity to those who are dealing with difficult situations. May you be able to handle this situation with equanimity. Uh, but usually it's given in some way of you considering what's going on in the world and can you be equanimous with what's happening? <coughs> All the famines in Africa or the wars in Asia or whatever. And think of those and still be equanimous. So there's multiple ways to work with the equanimity. And most people find, yeah, mudita on a daily basis is more difficult, but the equanimity practice is a hard one to really get a handle on. So these are the four Brahma Viharas. Questions, comments? Can we learn for ourselves and mudita? Can you do Tonglen for yourself? I don't ever remember doing that. Uh, when I was learning Tonglin, I was under the impression you did not do Mudita for yourself, so I would not have thought it strange to not do Tonglin for yourself. Uh, I suppose you could, but I don't know whether that's done traditionally or not. You might have been said you could, you could do tonglen on yourself. Okay, so you could do tonglen on yourself. And it has helped me to, like, when I have difficulties, I will just do tonglen right. on myself. Yeah, so breathe in, yeah. inhaling all the dukkha you're experiencing and transmute it and then <coughs> let it go. And giving light to <coughs> yourself. Yeah, yeah, giving light to yourself. Yeah. It's a very interesting practice, and if you ever get a chance uh, to find someone who's skilled at it to teach it, uh, it's, it's much better than I just explained it. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely check it out.
This is uh, this is really unrelated. Um, the, the the Donna baskets. If we're trying to use like a card to reach right down on a slip of paper with all the information. For a card, you've got to use PayPal. This you don't take credit cards, do you? Yeah, and I don't take credit cards. So you'll have to use PayPal. So write on a piece of paper donation coming via PayPal and the amount and put that in. Okay. Yeah. And then if you have a PayPal account, transfer the money into your account and you can send it over to our accounts without the 3% being deducted. Otherwise, PayPal is going to take its cut if you just go straight to the credit card. But you can, you don't, if you don't have a, a PayPal account, you can just go to a PayPal and uh, do a credit card there to pay somebody. It's an email address. For me, the best way is go to my website <laughs> and scroll to the bottom of the first page and look for the donate button and click it. And then you have to sign into your account, etc. But that'll take you to how you could donate for me. And you have a donate on your... We have a donate, and Oakwood has a donate on their website. Yeah. So. The, the easiest is just go to the website for the one to whom you wish to donate and find the donate button. And it really is at the bottom of the first page. People can't find it. I don't understand. So I did. I did all three of the PayPal's today, and so I'm happy to help you tomorrow with my iPad and show you how it's done. It's it's very straightforward. But I'll yes. Okay. Great. Yeah. Once we can talk, I'll show you. Right. Excellent. Um, you said the economic part is is difficult. I think in my case at least, will clear out number of my sources. Also, not worrying about some of the not worrying to this uh, this much about some of the worldly happenings. If we got better at the first three, do we become better at the economy practice, or how do we get better at that? Yeah. So like the first three will definitely help with the equanimity practice, but. Uh, really get good at it, yeah, you sort of got to do it. You've got to actually, okay, I, I want to see if I can increase my equanimity in the face of, and then think about all the craziness, all the dukkha out there in the world. Take it in small bites. The, the phrases that are usually used, the, the standard one is uh, most unappealing to me. You are the owner of your karma. My wishing for things to be different is not going to make them different. And that one is like, no, it doesn't work. Uh, so uh, you need to find phrases that work for you. I was just going to say, I did a, a letter to my spirit rock, and the phrase that they used is, uh, this is how it is, it is like this. And then also, may I warmly hold what is true. It is not that apathy, there's a little bit of compassion. Right. You know, when it doesn't seem to me, uh, like, I don't, I don't really care about this. It's just, oh, this is what it is. Yeah. And may I warmly hold that. Yeah, that's good. So, 
It's like this. May I normally... May I have peace in the midst of this? May I warmly hold it? Yeah. And I was going to say that uh, Temple did a really great story. Of, he was working at a, uh, a homeless shelter and he felt the compassion for the suffering that was there, but it lacked the backing and the equanimity. So he wasn't able to see it, and then when he started doing the equanimity practice, he was able to hold compassion and the suffering and be like, it is, it is like this. Right. But also have that genuine sense of trying to alleviate it too. Yeah. Yeah, if you can do the first three with equanimity, they're so much better, so much more profound. Yeah. Um, we have a phrase in self-compassion, and it's everyone is on his or her own life journey. Um, I'm not the cause of this person's suffering, but I may still try to help if I can. So there's a good thing to do. Yeah, that's, that's a good one too. I'll have one more. Okay, good. <laughs> I care for you deeply, but I cannot control the outcome for you. I, I care very deeply, but I cannot control the outcome for you. that word in the Brahma Vihara is the same uh, equanimity in the jhanas? Yes, so equanimity shows up in the fourth jhana. It's actually mentioned in the description of the third and becomes really prominent in the fourth. Uh, the fourth is said to be mindfulness fully purified by equanimity. Okay, the same word. And it's the seventh of the seven factors of awakening. So it shows up there as well. Uh, most commonly found in the suttas would be metta, and then probably next would be equanimity, and then compassion, and last mudita. Equanimity also shows up when your insight practice really matures, it can uh, take you to a state called equanimity about sankara. Usually translate equanimity about formations, but maybe better equanimity about the things of creation or creation. And it's a very powerful place. It, the equanimity is steady enough there because of the depth of the insight that you can look at something that's attractive, know it's attractive, and not be attracted. You can look, look at something that's disgusting, know it's disgusting, and not be disgusted. And that's a very good jumping off place for letting go deeply enough so that you might have a path moment. But the only way to get there is via insight. But yeah, so equanimity shows up in those four areas. That so-called high equanimity or equanimity about creation, the things of creation. Seventh of the seven factors of awakening, fourth jhana, primary factor, and the fourth of the Brahma Vihara. And it's all the, the same mind state that's being talked about.
I have a very off-topic question, um, but it, maybe it relates to Ipeka. Um, um, it, it has to do with the situation in Myanmar and Burma. Right. Um, and I've and I've traveled there extensively, and I'm um, and it's with the Rohingya, and so it's sort of this. It's nationalist, and it seems that it's. it's some elements, I mean, for a country that is so Buddhist and such a history of Buddhism, and they have this situation in it, maybe it's similar to what we saw also in Sri Lanka, you know, there, but, um, I'm sorry, I'm not, I don't know if I need to explain it more than that, but how, speaking of equanimity, I mean, how, how does one address this? I, I mean, there's the, not traveling there, Probably not making a lot of sense. This is the longest sentence in 14 days. So. <laughs> um, but this has really been on my mind. Yeah. And, and I, I ju- when I read the news and, and I hear the news, I just think, how, how, can, this, how can this be? Um, is there a, dis- I, mean, could, I don't know what you can comment on, but is there a discussion on this in the Buddhist community, in the Theravadan mm-hmm. community? How do, I, how do I address this? Because I know monks there and I know people there. And in, I don't not want to go, but how could I go and, and not say something? Right. So the first thing to remember is that this kicking these people out of their country is not a Buddhist activity. It's a nationalist activity. And it's a country that has been really, really trashed mm-hmm. for a long time with the military dictatorship. And so the nationalism indeed was supported by some of the monks. And, but I would say that probably the majority of the Burmese are not in favor of this, that there is compassion there. Uh, but governments do things that, yeah, most of the people don't like at times, especially if they're a dictatorship, sometimes even when they're not. So, uh, yeah, so it's not a Buddhist thing, even though there are monks that are very vocal in supporting this awful thing. Uh, It's hard, yeah, it's difficult to realize how much pain and suffering is going on there. And so, yes, it would be good if we can have equanimity about it, what can you do to alleviate that suffering? I think there are some international groups mm-hmm. that are trying to work with the refugees that this mm-hmm. is creating. Uh, but can you stay informed about what's going on and not turn away, and also not get too freaked out? And that's the difficult part. That, that's where the equanimity comes in, is to find out what's going on in that situation or many other mm-hmm. situations and be fully aware of what's happening there and not turn away from it. And then if you, if you feel that you can have something to share, find some organization that you can trust, that you can make a donation to or something. That's about all I can suggest. Yeah, I was in Burma in 1980 and uh, this was a three-year trip around the world. I was in 30-something countries, and Burma was by far the poorest country. Uh, the military dictatorship had completely screwed the place up. Uh, and although things got better, it still 
not doing that well. It's being ripped off like crazy basically. Anything else? I could add one more phrase you can say. Okay. <laughs> Everything is unfolding due to causes and conditions. This situation may be favorable or unfavorable. This situation may be just or unjust. But everything is unfolding due to causes and conditions. May I respond to the situation with wisdom and ease? Very good. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, we'll take a short break, and then we'll do that. So tomorrow, everything is the same until we get to break.